Like the other children, she was blithe and happy, fond of play. Unlike the average of children, she was at times much given to retiring within herself and trying to search out the hidden meanings of the deep things that make the puzzle and pathos of human existence, and in all ages have baffled the inquirer and mocked him. Hello and welcome to the Church of Max and Anuj. Welcome to Season 2. Today we have a very special episode that we have been working on for some time now. This episode is the first in our series of autobiographical interviews. And as the title suggests, today we will be interviewing Mark Twain. All of the words Mark says will predominantly be taken directly from his book, Chapters from My Autobiography, which is exactly what it seems. They're chapters from his autobiography that were published while he was still alive. Um, back in 1906 and 1907. His full autobiography was published in 2010, 100 years after his death. We hope you laugh, and maybe you'll even leave this episode with a greater understanding of life, or be completely and utterly confused, such as me and Anuj usually are. Yes, we, we usually are. But uh, join us as we discuss life with the father of American literature. This is Life Could Be a Dream. In the beginning of the podcast, you're listening to Mark Twain talk about his late daughter Susie, who passed away at the young age of 24. In the years that they did spend together, Susie opened his eyes to many things about life. Mark, I know you have a very unique outlook on society, so in what ways did Susie's death affect those newfound views that you conjured up? What I will say will sound dark. Nonetheless, it is what she and her death have taught me about life. A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Shames and humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned into aching grief. The burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, Ambition is dead. Pride is dead. Vanity is dead. Longing for release is in their place. It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift Earth has ever had for them, and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness. There they have left no sign of that they have existed, a world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. Then another myriad takes their place, and copies all that they did, and goes along the same profitless road, and vanishes as they vanished, to make room for another, and another, and a million other myriads, to follow the same arid path through the same desert, and accomplish what the first myriad, and all the other myriads that came after it accomplished. Nothing. Ah, Mark, that was quite deep and emotional, and it, it seems that you have learnt a lot about how life is very unco- unforgiving and stops for no one. But I'm sure not all of our lessons were bleak. For instance, what did she teach you when she was still around? I mean, when she was still present at your in your life? I mean, besides being your favorite child, in what ways did she have such a great and positive impact on you? 
Well, there was this one day. Susie had explained that at the nursery, there had been teaching her about the Indians and their religious beliefs, whereby it appeared that they had not only a god, but several. This had set Susie to thinking. As a result of this thinking, she had stopped praying. She qualified this statement, that is, she modified it, saying she did not now pray in the same way she had formerly done. Her mother said, Well, tell me about it, dear. Susie responded, Well, Mama, the Indians believed they knew, but now we know that they were wrong. By and by, it can turn out that we are wrong. So now I only pray that there may be a God and a heaven, or something better. I wrote down this pathetic prayer in its precise wording at the time, and in a record which we kept of the children's sayings. And my reverence for it has grown with the years that have passed over my head since then. Its untaught grace and simplicity are child's, but the wisdom and the pathos of it are of all ages that have come and gone since the race of man has lived, and longed and hoped and feared and doubted. Well, on this topic, I mean, one of the most debated ideas today is whether or not God exists. Yes, and many conflicts have been fought on the grounds of religion. Is religion necessary in our world today? Is it, is it a way to give hope and strive to be better, or has it become an excuse to hate and inflict pain on others? Well, me and you and Uj, we don't really believe in God, so people can start to imagine how we feel when we flip over a dollar bill and read, In God We Trust. We think, oh crap, we're, we're about to get robbed, is this, is this a counterfeit? Yeah, you know, it's like, whew. But um, whereas others may think, and, and I think the reason why it says that is they think, I could have no greater trust in anything than something that is backed by God. And so it's interesting to see how the same message can be, you know, have different interpretations. Richard Dawkins said it best. I mean, he said, we don't believe in God for the same reason why a Christian isn't Hindu and why a Buddhist isn't Muslim. I mean, in that circumstance, your religion is based on whichever family and geographical location you were born in, which is quite subjective, if I must say. Yeah, it's, it goes to show that, like, so Max, okay, so there might, the Big Bang started, and we don't know whatever happened, what happened before the Big Bang, right? There's, the explanation for that is something we do not know. So, you know, some people say that the only reason that could happen is because there must have been some force, some god that created it. And that, that, that possibility, it is a possibility. The, the chance of that being true isn't 50-50. There isn't a god and not a god, and, and the, the chance of there being god isn't half. But what it does signify is that's something we don't know. So people use god to ex explain something we don't know. And we've seen that through civilizations, you know, from every corner of the globe for, like, since civilizations arose on Earth. So we cannot deny the fact that every civilization has thought of some higher power. But now as we have more technology and we understand, you know, our surroundings better, you know, religion starts to, um, the value of it starts to become less and less because we are starting to make sense of our surroundings. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, also, I think another example is, I think a reason 
why people use religion so much is because they when something goes wrong in their life they they think oh i must pray to god but oftentimes it's their mistakes or it's others mistakes but they just don't want to accept that you know i mean it's just like yeah oftentimes we can't control stuff we do and they can't handle the the responsibility that they have but i mean it's fascinating how susie upon being told that the native american religion was wrong and then she started to question her own religion which is very interesting and very insightful of her and i do like the solution that she came up with yeah like nowadays religion and i guess it always has it has all these i guess we call it extra baggage you know like you must do this and this and that while you're alive so when you're dead you'll be happy but i think it's important to just be happy while we're alive you know but to go back to what susie was saying i do think she came up with a great solution and so as i was saying we don't need to have all these fancy rituals and and you know pray to these gods but not those gods and, and hope i make it to heaven but you don't you know i feel like if we need to pray you know it's important to pray for hope but i think that's really it yeah i mean we judge so many people today based on what religion or what gods they pray to but as you said i think it's we just need to pray for something something up there something better than, like what susie was saying but um Mark is right in saying that it's something we must all ponder. I mean, it's something that we, we must all question and have our own opinions about. I mean, even the Pope must have doubt, in the same way that even the strongest atheist must have also some sliver of doubt. So Mark, now you have told us about your bit on religion, but what about the way in which humans form governments? Because, I mean, over the course of history, we all, we've had a wide range of those as well. Well, human nature is uh, being what it is, I suppose. We must expect to drift into monarchy by and by. It is a saddening thought, but we cannot change our nature. And we are all alike, we human beings, and in our blood and our bone. And in Redactable, we carry the seeds out of which monarchies and aristocracies are grown. The worship of gods, titles, distinctions, power. By and by, we have to worship these things and their possessors. We are all born so, and we cannot help it. We have to be despised by somebody whom we regard as above us. Or we are not happy. We have to have somebody to worship and envy, or we cannot be content. But surely, I mean, here in America, we're founded on democracy. That's what our constitution is based on. So, it's not a monarchy with kings and such other titles, so... You can't surely think that America will eventually turn into a monarchy. Well, the next step is to rail and scoff at republics and democracies, all of which is natural, for we have not ceased to be human by becoming Americans, and and the human race was always intended to be governed by kingship, not by a popular vote. In America, we manifest this in all the ancient and customary ways, In public, we scoff at titles and hereditary privilege, but privately, we hanker after them, and when we get a chance, we buy them for cash and a daughter. Sometimes, we get a good man and worth the price, but we are ready to take him anyway, whether he be ripe or rotten, whether he be clean or decent, or merely a basket of noble and sacred and long-descended fell. And when we get him, the whole nation publicly chops and scoffs,
and privately envies, and also is proud of the honor which has been conferred upon us. We run over our list of titled purchases every now and then in the newspaper and discuss them and caress them and are thankful and happy. Like other nations, uh, we worship money and the possessors of it, they being our aristocracy. And we have to have one. We like to read about rich people in the papers. I'm sure you do. I do as well. And the papers know it as well. They do their best to keep this appetite liberally fed. They even have a they even leave out a football bullfight now and then to get more room in for all the particulars of how, according to the display heading, rich woman fell down cellar, not hurt. The falling down the cellar is of no interest to us when the woman is not rich. But no rich woman can fall down the cellar, and we not yearn to know about it and wish it was us. I suppose we must expect that unavoidable and irresistible circumstances will gradually take away the powers of the states and concentrate them in the central government, and that the republic will then repeat the history of all time and become a monarchy. But I believe that if we obstruct these encroachments and subtly resist, then the monarchy can be postponed for a good while yet. Well, I certainly hope that doesn't happen because we don't we don't want a monarchy here in America, or at least I don't. But Mark Sherd certainly does think that a monarchy is unavoidable, and I I certainly hope it will be postponed for a little while longer, as he said. I also hope it is postponed, Max. But when Mark talks about monarchy, we mean we needing to worship someone above us. It almost seems like we're bringing this conversation back to religion. Do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, Anuj, I think when Mark talked about being ruled by high power and being being necessary that we need to be ruled by high power, I think I think I'd contradict him in that sense because, as we said earlier, I mean, me and you, we don't really believe in God, so it's sort of it's sort of it's different for us because we don't we don't feel the need to be ruled by that that higher power, as Mark says. Yeah, and now that more people, I think, feel the same way we do. I wonder if we'll still. I wonder if Mark Twain was alive today, if he would still believe that we would eventually become a monarchy. Um, although, you know, he does also talk about states' rights and and federal government and the difference between them. So, I just think it's interesting how he how he thinks we'll have a monarchy um, in the future. You know, given what he's talking about, you know, in it whether it be you know religion. Um, money and um, and you know the rights of states and, and the federal government, but uh, we can also if we come back to talking about um, monarchy and in the future, it does seem this way that you know rich people can see themselves as important, power worthy to the public um, because they hold a portion of the wealth of America, which some could argue is what makes you know America so great is the money and the economy, and some could argue that. The rich play a large role in simulating the economy, whether it be their businesses, or whether it be them putting money into the economy by investing in others' businesses. I mean, while this is true, I don't think. I mean, personally, I don't think that's the base of America. I don't think that's that's what I. When I think of America, I don't think, oh, we have such a great economy. I don't. It's not the first thing that comes to mind. But I mean, then again, me and you and Hood, we're not part of the ordinary public. I mean, we have very different views. I would say. 
I think we have learned thus far that money can be a means by which to live life in the end that it can aid our overall happiness, but, and I mean, I think money often plays a large role in trying to achieve that happiness, talking about like traveling to different countries and exploring many, lot, much of the time you need lots of money for that, but life should not be a means by which to get money. I don't think that should be the end goal. You can't really live your life for money because then, then where's the happiness? And after all, money is backed by God, as we said before, so it might as well be thin air. But I think my end goal that I'm trying to say is, instead, at the end of our lives, we should be we should be left by something that is that is backed by fulfillment, happiness, and knowledge, not not by God. Yeah, I can't agree with you more because those are fulfillment, happiness, and knowledge that you just mentioned there. Those are meaningful to us, and. And money and riches, you know, they, they, we don't want to let them bring down our dignity to a standard, to a lower standard, you know, and I will continue to live my life happily, and I know you will do the same. So we just need to be fulfilled by the knowledge we attain by talking to others and, and learning and, and living. And so we want to have a, a life where we can appreciate what we do that does not require, you know, riches. I mean, I also don't want to take away from the people that, some people that are rich, I don't want to take away from them because oftentimes they also have very, very strong core beliefs that are similar to many people. I mean, money sometimes comes by way of birth. I mean, we must, as a country, support and root for the people that that come from sort of the lower half of the spectrum, as I, I might put it, as they, they don't come from such a wealthy family or such, where they have some, something to fall back on, so they... They don't have those consequences that we have, but um, I think we must root for the people that, that come from those sort of worse backgrounds, and I think they represent what America's truly about. They, they fight for the freedom, equality, and unity that we strive for, which is regardless of money. Yeah, and I think that's, that's important in preserving our democracy, because if that doesn't happen, then ladies and gentlemen, Mark Twain will have predicted our future. Now, some of us don't like the situation that we are currently in with our president, and whatever your opinion is, I think we can all agree that a monarchy would be worse. Let's get back to Mark and his brilliant thoughts. Mark, I know that you have three cats, and they play a vital role in your home life, and I can only imagine that even though these cute animals are very... So they seem so insignificant. I I can only imagine that you've pulled some sort of deeper meaning from them. Ah, oh, Max. What could I possibly learn from, from three silly cats? Well, I have heard that you believe your cats are, are special. I'd say more more special than the ordinary cat. I was just wondering if they've taught you something something more special. Uh, well, yes, I, I have said that, but I have no idea who is telling you all of this. Um... Who may your source be? I would suspect my wife, but she is dead and thus can no longer communicate with the living. But uh, I will tell you, these cats are like human beings in another way. When one begins to work his fictitious emotions and show off, the other members of the firm follow suit in order to be in the fashion. And by and by, that is the way with human beings. They are afraid to be outside, whatever the fashion happens to be. They conform to it, whether it be pleasant fashion or the reverse. They lack the courage to ignore it and go their own way. 
all human beings would like to dress in loose and comfortable and lightly colored and showy garments. And they had their desire until a century ago when a king or some other influential ass introduced somber hues and discomfort and ugly designs into masculine clothing. The meek public surrendered to the outrage, and by the consequence, we are in that odious captivity today, and are likely to remain in it for a long time to come. And what about you? Do you also believe that you are in this captivity? I mean, would you also like to defer and break free from this captivity of the commonality of society and wear, wear different clothing? Why, of course. I would like to dress in a loose and flowing costume made of silks and velvets, resplendent with all the stunning dyes of the rainbow. And so would every sane man I have ever known, at least this side of the Mississippi. <laughs> but none of us dares to venture it. There is such a thing as carrying conspicuousness to the point of discomfort. And if I should appear on Fifth Avenue on a Sunday morning at church time, clothed as I would like to be clothed, the churches would be vacant. And if I should have all the congregations tagging after me to look and secretly envy and publicly scoff, it is the way human beings are made. They are always keeping their real feelings shut up inside and publicly exploiting their fictitious ones. Well, Mark, it, it seems that you're learning more from your cats than I'm learning from my teachers. But I, I think you make a, a very valid point here that I think is very detrimental to our society that everyone keeps keeps their true feelings to themselves because then it, ma it makes it a lot more difficult to to communicate with people because you never know if they're if they're telling their their truth their truth. But um, I would also love to see you wearing what you'd like what you'd like to be wearing, and I can only imagine how elegant you would look. But I do have a strong hunch that society will change in, per se, the next hundred or so years, if that makes you feel any better. Oh, why, thank you. And yes, it does make me feel better. But how could you possibly know what the future holds? Although you do have a lot of optimism for a young one. But there is no sadder thing than a young pessimist, except an old optimist. I being the pessimist, and you being the optimist, I say we are doing good so far. But, Max, uh, I am nearly 71. I recognize that my age has given me a good many privileges, valuable privileges, privileges which are not granted to the younger persons. Little by little, I hope to get together courage enough to wear white clothes all through the winter in New York. It will be a great satisfaction to me to show off in this way, and perhaps the largest of all the satisfactions will be knowing that every scoffer of my sex will secretly envy me and wish he dared to follow my lead. Uh, Mark, I'm sure there are many men who wish to follow your lead, but um, this makes me question your stance on plagiarism because it seems you also follow other people, um, or at least it seems you have followed someone in their writing, and I was just wondering if this was true, and what did you learn from this experience? Sadly, it is indeed true. It wasn't until a friend brought it to my knowledge that I realized I once subconsciously plagiarized a dedication by Oliver Wendell Holmes. I wrote to Dr. Holmes and told him the whole disgraceful affair, implored him in impassioned language to believe that I had never intended to commit this crime. I was unaware that I had committed it until I was confronted with the awful evidence. I have lost his answer, 
I could have better afforded to lose an uncle. Of these I had surplus, many of them of no real value to me. But that letter was beyond price, beyond uncledom, and unsparable. In it, Dr. Holmes laughed the kindest and healingest laugh over the whole matter, and at considerable length and in happy phrase assured me that there was no crime in unconscious plagiarism, that I committed it every day, that he committed it every day, that every man alive on earth who writes or speaks commits it every day, and not merely once or twice, but every time he opens his mouth. In all our, in all our phrasings, our spiritualized shadows cast multitudinously from our readings, that no happy phrase of ours is ever quite original with us. There is nothing of our own in it except some slight change, born of our temperament, character, environment, teaching, and associations that this slight change differentiates it from another man's manner of saying it, stamps it with our special style, and makes it our own for the time being, all the rest of it being old, moldy, antique, and smelling of breath of a thousand generations, of them who have passed it over their teeth before. Anuj, Mark brings up an interesting point here, and... It's, it's odd to think of plagiarism this way, yet it's quite true. Yeah, it certainly is odd, because, you know, we spend our whole lives in school, and we've been taught that plagiarism is frowned upon. You must avoid it at all costs. But it's hard to think if that's... is that even possible? Yeah, I mean, Dr. Holmes brought a whole new perspective to the whole idea of plagiarism as we know it, but... And he, he brought it up in a simple letter to Mark, because even though he was the one who was being, I guess, plagiarized on, I mean, he still had, like, no regard for it, and he, he sort of laughed it off. Yeah, like, we might think he would be mad, but no, he wasn't at all. And, um, I think Dr. Holmes is right in the fact that we most likely plagiarize every day without knowing it. Um, there are so many people on this earth, and it's only natural and makes sense that our thoughts should overlap. I mean, all the stress that they're putting upon plagiarism these days in, in schools and colleges and life in general, I think it must be forgotten because as long as one doesn't consciously copy another another writing or idea word for word in order to profit yourself, as, as long as one's ideas are sparked from your own imagination and you, you come up with it yourself, the word plagiarism, it, it loses its sense of criminal behavior. Yeah, I think... Like, of course, schools and, and, and everyone should be against, like, intentional plagiarism. But plagiarism itself should be something that should be explored, you know? Like, read about someone else and then, you know, what, what, with what you've learned, use that on something else. So that's, I think that's a new twist to plagiarism. And, you know, this is because, you know, ideas you come up with and thoughts you have on a, on a subject... You know, those thoughts are influenced by others. Most likely, your thoughts will also influence others in the future. And so, just with their own twist. Yeah, and I think that's why we need to respect the validity of others' ideas. We can't we can't hate upon others' ideas, because most likely, you have thought those ideas. And just like you said, in the future and in the past, I mean, ideas are just constantly moving, uh, if you can try to imagine that. But... I think, if anything, we must friend these people who think alike, because great minds think alike, do they not? 
Ah, they do. <laughs> and a perfect use of that well-known saying, Max. And I think that's truly what it stands for. A sense of, you know, togetherness. A sense of being, being one. And on the subject of unity, America has had a troubled past when it comes to holding true to its core values. One example being the, the captivity of American, African Americans for labor. Mark, I wanted to discuss your views on slavery and how come you grew to become such a supporter for the emancipation of slaves even when you were raised in the South where slavery actually took place? Well, in my schoolboy days, I had no aversion to slavery. I was not aware that there was anything wrong about it. No one arranged it in my hearing. The local papers said nothing against it. The local pulpit taught us that God approved it, and that it was a holy thing, and that the doubter need only look in the Bible if he wished to settle his mind. And then the texts were read aloud to us to make the matter sure. If the slaves themselves had an aversion to slavery, they were wise and said nothing. Well, I mean, of course your young and innocent mind thought nothing of it back then when you were when you were still in school, but I know since then your view has changed drastically, and it shows in a lot of your works, one of them being The Adventure of Huckleberry Finn. Um, and I know you expressed disapproval to the unjust treatment of enslaved African Americans. Uh, I just want to know, where did this sentiment arise from? Ah, good old Huckleberry. Ah, you know I wrote that book back in my youngin' days. But nonetheless... You are quite right in saying that my views have changed since my schoolboy days, as ones do. There was, however, one small incident in my boyhood days which touched this matter, and it must have meant a good deal to me, or it would not have stayed in my memory, clear and sharp, vivid and shadowless, all these slow-drifting years. Uh, we had a little slave boy whom we hired for some, from someone there in Hannibal, he was from the eastern shore of Maryland, and had been brought away from his family and his friends, halfway across the American continent, and sold. He was a cheery spirit, innocent and gentle, and the, but the noisiest creature that ever was, perhaps. All day long he was singing and whistling and yelling and whooping and laughing. It was maddening, devastating, unendurable. At last, one day... I lost all my temper and went raging to my mother and said, Sandy's been singing for an hour without a single break, and I couldn't stand it. And wouldn't she please shut him up? The tears came into her eyes, and her lip trembled, and she said something like this. A poor thing, when he sings, it shows that he is not remembering, and that comforts me. And when he is still, I am afraid he is thinking and I cannot bear it. He will never see his mother again. If he can sing, I must not hinder it, but be thankful for it. If you were older, you would understand me. Then that friendless child's noise would make you glad. It was a simple speech, made up of small words, but it went home, and Sandy's noise was not a trouble to me any more. It seems Mark's mother's words took great effect on him throughout lots of his life, yet I still can't imagine growing up in a society where slavery was not taught to young kids as something that is morally wrong. 
And it seems as though Mark grew up in a society where religion was abused in order to profit the white people of the South. I mean, I can't really say I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm not too surprised either. But I guess there are always good people who do notice faults in society like Mark's mother. But it does beg the question of why they had a slave in the first place if they if they were so opposed to it. Yeah, that's, that's something I was th- thinking about as well. And I'm not sure we can get a response to that question because Mark doesn't doesn't say anything about that in his book and he doesn't like he doesn't even bring up that point but i think you do bring up a valid point and i think like some possible answers could be that it was part of the society and the culture to have slaves and i know a lot of people who may have been like who may have viewed slavery in a bad light also had the had the you know idea that it was a necessary evil so i think a culture role may have played a factor. Yes, but I, I still don't think that that really that doesn't make you that doesn't make it okay to have slaves, I don't think. But I think it, it does show how it does I think these stories show how youth learned so quickly back then and they were so easily influenced in the wrong ways through through learning and in their school and they were taught that nothing's wrong with slavery, but I think they were also taught by people like Mark's mother that slavery is morally wrong and I think there were some good people, like you say, out there. Yeah, it does show how the youth, um, even people as old as you know me and you, are still like seventeen, like we're still influenced pretty, pretty quickly and easily by things we see. So it's important to, to you know, teach young people, you know, what is right early on. And so I think his mother taught him that African people, African American people are also humans, you know, they have mothers and fathers, and they have whole families of brothers and sisters. And in a society where African Americans were dehumanized, where white people were taught to dehumanize them, and where they taught African Americans to dehumanize themselves, or or at least they tried to, um, Mark realized that um, from his mother that African Americans are people too, and they need to be treated like people. So because their lives, because they're in a worse off predicament, they're, they're way worse off, any happiness or innocence that is in this young boy should be preserved. And I think that's why Marx supported emancipation from this point on. Mark, I noticed that you have picked up a lot about human nature throughout your life, and especially one who has lived as old as you are, must have lots of experience about human nature and about about society and i know you talk a lot about seeing human nature in your cats and what you wish to wear and what is comfortable and so on is something is human nature something that you ponder often why yes seeing as i have nothing else to do but (laughs) the last quarter of a century of my life has been pretty constantly and faithfully devoted to the study of the human race that is to say the study of myself For in my individual person, I am the entire human race compacted together. I have found no ingredient in the human race which I do not possess in either a small way or a large way. When it is small, as compared with the same ingredient in somebody else, there is still enough of it for all the purposes of examination. In my contact with the species, I find no one who possesses a quality which I do not possess. Uh, it's it's nice to know that we are all so similar, but I also hope that we experience the same kind of success. Ah, there's that optimism again. 
by and by. Unfortunately, we are pretty similar. So, Mark, I know you talk a lot about we are also similar, but what about the differences? Are we all are we all different in some way too? Huh? Say yes, but the shades of difference between other people and me serve to make variety and prevent monotony. But that is all. Broadly speaking, we are all alike, and so by studying myself carefully and comparing myself with other people and noting the divergences, I have been enabled to acquire a knowledge of the human race which I perceive is more accurate and more comprehensive than which has been acquired and revealed by any other member of our species. As a result, my private and concealed opinion of myself is not a complimentary sort. It follows that my estimate of the human race is the duplicate of my estimate of myself. You see, Anuj, Mark is not one of those people that overlooks his mistakes and, and blames other people. I mean, this comes to show that Mark, Mark sees the good and bad in other people, but he also sees that in himself, which I think is, is very insightful and very selfless of him. Yeah, it's also something that's hard to do, you know. Oftentimes, we discard our bad thoughts and behaviors that we might see in others um, for the reason that we know it's it's bad. And this happens subconsciously. I think that's what makes it so hard to evaluate, evaluate ourselves because we often overlook the mistakes that we make and we just, we just don't want to accept our responsibilities. But as Mark did, and he even shared his findings with us, which is commendable, and I don't think I've really ever thought about human nature like this. Have you, Anuj? Um, no, I, I haven't. But uh, well, let's, let's, let's pretend, or maybe he is, but let's just say Mark Twain is correct in his evaluation. That goes to show that certain circumstances in one's life play a huge role in how a person acts and the types of decisions they make. Childhood, for example, can make two people with the same traits display them in different proportions. I mean, that's just one example, but I mean, there's so many positive and negative incidents that can that can happen in one's life that that changes it for the better or for worse for the rest of their life. So I guess I guess Mark is right. Yeah, I, I guess he is. We all possess the same qualities, just in different quantities due to the circumstances of our life. And, you know, we hope we under we hope understanding this will create less hate in the world against people who are different. I mean, we really are the same. We all are all the same deep down. I think it's just just the surfaces that we have that are different. And sometimes this is due to where we're positioned on the globe, or it can also be due to what had happened in our life. And I think that I think that's very it's very difficult to judge people based on the surface because we don't know th their whole story. Yeah, and that's why when we dig a bit deeper, we find that. We are all the same. So we must try to bring the good out of others because, as Mark said, it's something we all possess. We would like to thank Mark Twain for recording his life in his autobiography because if it weren't for the short stories from his life that he did record, we would have never been able to do this. That's absolutely right. Um, almost all of what Mark said came from chapters from my autobiography by Mark Twain, 
It was our source for this podcast. Mark did write many funny stories that we didn't include in the podcast, although they did help they did help us gain a greater understanding of Mark's personality, which ultimately helped us make this episode, and we just wanted to be as accurate as possible. Yeah. One of the stories was about when there was a burglar in his house, his wife told him to go downstairs and, and do something. He replied that he will not go downstairs because he will be of no assistance to the burglar and that the burglar knows what he is doing because he is a professional. He also mentioned that the burglar will, will not find anything of, of importance. Uh, Mark was such a funny guy and he sure enough was right. I think there was another story about once he challenged someone to a duel and then realized that he couldn't even hit a barn door. And then later on, his friend shot a bird out of the sky, and then when his opponent came, they pretended Mark had done it. And then, as he saw the dead bird, and he got scared out of his mind, and he quickly ran home and withdrew. Relieved, Mark went to go see his opponent's mark where his opponent was shooting, and he realized that he had hit it four out of six times, which Mark could have never done. And later, Mark went on to say that if there ever was a duel, he would have surely lost his life. Oh yes, I like that one. I like that story as well. Um, we would like to thank you for listening. Join us in two weeks as we continue to forge ahead in this new chapter of our podcast.